Layovers 062 Barcelona. Hi, Alex. How are Hi, you? Hi, good. Tired, but good. Yeah, tired. We were both in Barcelona for Mobile World Congress, which for those who don't know is probably the biggest mobile conference in the world. So obviously, the choice of the airport this week was pretty easy, uh, Barcelona. But you, Alex, did way more than just that airport this week, didn't you? I did. I I did something very foolish and uh, decided to be in basically two places at once. So I on Sunday night, starting on Sunday night, I did Gatwick, Barcelona, Liverpool, Isle of Man, Manchester, Barcelona, Gatwick. And I got back last night. <laughs> which is uh wednesday night so yes uh, it was exhausting but i made all my tight connections and uh you know it, it, it was kind of fun got to see uh, some different airports different air three different airlines three different uh countries three different aircraft types come right. on you just you just did that for the challenge i do absolutely <laughs> the people like they're you know you and i are, and, and probably a lot of the people that listen to this show are the rare breed of people who were like okay I, that I, I see that as a challenge not as a uh, a nightmare yeah my trip was much less problematic i just went through zurich because i love star alliance and that's and and zurich which will be an airport we'll be covering in one of our upcoming episodes is one of my favorite airports so i just got to hang out there for like three and then four hours layovers, so that was pretty cool. So, uh, moving on to the before we move on, to, sorry to the uh, news of the week. I wanted to give two shout outs. The first is uh, one of our favorite websites, the designair.net, has uh, just started its own web uh, podcast. Yeah, have you listened? I to have. It? It's fantastic. It's it's exactly the quality and structure that I assumed it would be given the quality and structure of everything else they do. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, it's called The Aviator. It's going to, going to be released once a month, every first of the month. So the first episode is available on iTunes and on their website. I'll put the link on layovers.2 uh, um, here. Uh, it's really, really well done. Gave us a lot of ideas. And so welcome, guys. It's uh, Ted and Johnny. So welcome, guys. And we're really uh, looking forward to listening to you. The second shout-out I wanted to make is closer to home because it's a shout-out to you, Alex. You've uh, just uh, released the first episode of your new travel show. It's a video travel show called Attaché. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, no, thank you. I'm ex just so happy to finally get this out in the open. It's something I've been working on for uh, about a year yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, it's a it's a kind of new tr kind of travel show. I was, I was sick of watching kind of hour long programs aimed at tourists, so I wanted to create a show that was much shorter, online only, and aimed at reasonably savvy frequent travelers. And it gives you everything you need to know about a city, assuming that you're not going to be there for very long. So our pilot was in London. That's up on YouTube. Just search for Attaché London. Uh, we filmed uh, Dublin already, and we filmed the show in Barcelona, which I'm. Oh yeah, I was there. I was. I looked at some behind the scenes. <laughs> I, that was really cool. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. So take a look. Let me know what you think, uh, and you know, it, suggest cities, ideas, tips. I, I, I'm all over that kind of stuff. But I'm delighted to have it out there. Yeah, it's really, really well done. Congratulations! Thank you. I really no, enjoy I, I it a lot. That. I mean, I, I, I mean, we worked together, so I was privy of this show for a long time, and I saw some of the early cuts from that first episodes, and it, it's really, really, really cool. I enjoyed it. And I already forwarded it to a lot of friends of mine. They all love it. So, congrats! No, thanks, man. Uh, moving on to the news of the week, the aviation news of the week. Uh, you wanted to mention something from 
Iceland. Yeah, this this is one of those things that when I read the headline, I thought, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. You're disrupting. You're not going to disrupt anything. But these guys actually seem to be. So it's Iceland's Wow Air, which is a low-cost area uh, carrier based out of Reykjavik. And they've just announced that they're going to do transatlantic routes. They've leased two A321s. And they're doing Reykjavik to Boston, Reykjavik to D.C. But the way they're marketing it is fly London to Boston, fly London to Washington, D.C., and vice versa. Uh, and they're starting Boston in March and um, D.C. in May. And I thought, okay, yeah, low cost, whatever. And I looked, just picked some random dates. And to do London, Boston round trip on Wow Air was 356 pounds and 36p all in. And I searched on kayak, same date, and the cheapest I could find, one stop, was 200 pounds more. So... Who was that? Was was it Iceland Air? Delta. Oh. <laughs> Delta. So, so they... I was impressed. I was very surprised. That is a significant and substantial savings. And I think that they're going to market it in the U.S. as a similar manner, that it's not get to Reykjavik, it's it's get to Europe. So good for them. I, I hope that they that they find success on a, on a very, very competitive uh, set of routes. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because we've been talking, you and me, about the, uh, the possibility of having uh, a low-cost airline doing transatlantic flight. We mentioned that uh, Norwegian is still waiting for its license to be greenlit in the U.S., so it's not doing it yet. Uh, Ryanair has announced that it wants to do uh, low-cost um, transatlantic flights within the next three years. Uh, they they say they're going to do it uh, through a different brand, uh, probably because they want to set up a different operation to do it. Uh, but I mean, you know, that's being uh, in Iceland. Yeah, you have this is just geogra- geography. It's perfectly it's, it's positioned, nice, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, this is why already Iceland here. I, I have these kind of routes, uh, routes as well. Uh, I've never taken them. They were always kind of cheaper than other airlines that uh, that uh, proposed this transatlantic route. So you know, it's it's the first step in a good direction. I think we will see more and more uh, plans of trying to crack that nut and being able to do low cost on these routes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. and they're I think they're they're very clever the way they're marketing it because from right now from Reykjavik you can fly to. Paris, Amsterdam, Copenhagen, Dublin with those guys. So they're just going to continue to extend that route as they get more A321s. Exactly. Uh, moving on to the news that was the news for all these past weeks is uh, still on, you know, uh, the Gulf Airlines versus the US Airlines. Uh, just wanted, we don't want to ramble about this every single show, but there was an interesting thing that was done by Emirates. Uh, they released a report uh, about the, the size, the contribution of uh, all Emirates operations in Europe in terms of economic impact. Uh, and it said that uh, the airline operation added a windfall of almost 7 billion euros uh, within the European economy. So that's almost $8 billion. Uh, so it's obviously the they calculate as well the fact that they bought a lot of uh, planes from uh, Airbus, which is based in Europe. But it's an interesting way. We always said that out of the three airlines in the Middle East, Tim Clark, the CEO of uh, Emirates, is very smart. And I think, again, here, 
whether or not you believe these numbers, whether or not, of course, we know it's part lobbying, obviously, to uh, to have such a report being coming out. Uh, but it's interesting to show a different aspect of it. It's not only about the oh, we offer these great products and experience, and you can go to the rest of the world. But it's also like oh, you want to we create jobs. Yeah, it's the it's the it's the classic job creation manifesto, isn't it? It's quite a powerful thing, and it's a step outside of you know we offer this particular type of product and service, but we're actually extending that benefit to economies, local economies, and and, and regional economies. So sensible thing to for them to do to add to this ongoing and perpetual debate between the U.S. airlines and and the Middle Eastern airlines. Uh, also, you, you might have seen the uh, on Facebook, there's been lately a lot of Facebook ads from Emirates, uh, especially for looking for staff, both pilots and attendants. Uh, it's, it, I, I'm not going to use, I could use the term aggressive, but it's not aggressive in a way that it's uh, being aggressive in the way the content is. But I've seen really a lot of those ads popping up in my feed. So they seem to be suddenly ramping up the communication effort here as well to say, look, look, we have not only a great experience, uh, but we offer great jobs. Uh, they obviously mentioned the fact that living in Dubai is tax-free. Yeah. <laughs> Which, <laughs> and they're doing other things like uh, putting out PR things about possibly removing some of the taxes and fees that are involved in flights to North America. So they have a broad and varied arsenal to attack this particular problem uh, and extremely deep pockets let's not forget yes. so i think this is this is an interesting development and a very sensible development when they start to appeal at the governmental level for for if it if this happens to go to that point which i think it might in the us uh interestingly because again we know that sides, sides are being formed. Boeing expressed support for Open Skies, so the free trade agreement for skies uh, thing. That, so it's interesting that the American manufacturer of planes would actually side, I mean, would not go against U.S. airlines, but not far from it. Uh, well, it's in their interest, the, really, isn't it? Because if, of course, you know, <laughs> if you can sell Singapore Airlines, you can fly London to San Francisco, then they're going to need more airplanes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But it's really uh, the FedEx. I think I don't know if I if I'd mentioned that last week. Also, they, uh, the, 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 the words are saying are pretty intense. It's that the U.S. should not capitulate to the interests of a few carriers who stand ready to put their narrow protectionist interest ahead of the economic benefits that Open Skies provides. That's the chief executive of and FedEx. He, and he's saying that about he's saying that about the big three U.S. airlines. Correct. So that's you're right. That is extremely aggressive and and not pulling any punches to a to a compatriot airline. Admirable. Yeah, I mean, he's right. I think, in my opinion, he's 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 spot on. Yeah. So we're seeing interesting dynamic. This this debate. What what is I, I would say the the good outcome of that debate is that we're basically having that debate and really we're starting actually really okay. What do we want uh, uh, for the airline industry? What kind of competition we want? What kind of dynamic we want? And I think it's really interesting to to follow this story. I agree. Uh, Moving on to uh, a new type of aircraft. Yes, yeah, so last week, the Bombardier CS300 had its very first flight successfully. Uh, finally. Finally, yes, this is very true. It's been a long delayed and, and problem-plagued uh, program. But I got to watch, I don't know if you were tracking it as well, Paul, on, on the Plane Finder app. Yeah, of course. And it had a, a successful, <laughs> smooth, easy four-and-a-half-hour flight 
uh, with no problems, which is always what we want when a new plane takes off. So you're right. This, this is this program has had a lot of issues. It's two years behind schedule. The the C series in general. This the smaller variant, the 110 seater, the CS 100, is actually supposed to go into service uh, in just a few months, and then the CS 300, which is bigger, uh, will go in between six and eight months later, according to Bombardier. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's an interesting. I mean, it, uh, it was supposed to appear at Farnborough uh, last uh, year. I did go, but obviously it wasn't there because, as you mentioned, you went. It you know, so many delays and plagued with so many problems. So I, I'm, we can be pretty happy to that it finally gets there. But do you think they have uh, a, an actual future with that plane? It's, it's a risky bet. They are they're betting the farm on this one because they're struggling otherwise. They've stopped production of the new Learjet model because there was no demand for it. Um, although, having stood on the ramp of, at Barcelona Airport yesterday, it certainly didn't seem like there were, there aren't many private jets flying around. We'll talk about that later at the end of the show, but holy cow. Um, <laughs> I agree. But, 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 hey. but maybe, maybe for those who don't know, the, the, these, this series is because it, they're going... Uh, against basically the Airbus A320 and the Boeing 737 series with that with that yeah, it's sort aircraft, of, it, it sits in between the the Embraer regional jets, the bigger the E175s and the E190s, which are I love. I think those are great airplanes. And as you say, the 73s and the A181920 um, models. So it's an interesting, and we talked, we've hinted at this either on the show or in conversation that you know where is this segment going to go and is it big enough to support a multi-billion dollar aircraft development program yeah exactly the there was uh al baker the <laughs> the the ceo the very outspoken ceo ceo of qatar Airways, uh said that basically because they had an interest at some point into go, uh, acquiring some of these uh, airlines and because of the all the problems I'll find the quote. I don't have it in front of me, but he basically said, "Oh, what? What is that? I forgot about these planes." Uh, meaning, like he's really yeah. harsh as usual. It's, but that's that's the risk. I mean, they're really going. They're suddenly entering into a fray that is the, the duopoly between Airbus and, and and Boeing. And like you said, I think they're betting the farm. I hope they have some orders already. Yeah, they have about still two very early. And, and what's weird is that for a segment of the airline industry. Uh, or aircraft industry, I suppose I should say, that has been so quiet for so long. There really hadn't been any development since the the Embraer regional jets. It suddenly just burst into life, and you've got the Embraer jets and the new the E two versions, which are coming out soon. The new Kawasaki plane, the Mitsubishi regional jet, the Sukhoi super jet, the Comac nine one nine. These are all the Arcut. The, yeah. uh, the Arcut, yeah, they're all in the same same size, and all of a sudden this this. And no one could – I don't think anybody could have foreseen this 10 years ago. So I would be surprised if all of these models survive even sort of past their first few years. Yeah, and at some point the Chinese will come in full force. Yeah, well, well. Comac is, is – Yeah, I know Comac is, but for the moment they're still very early in the game. And people are a bit looking at them like – uh, you know, like that they look at the car makers in China right now. Is people are a little bit like laughing, like okay, well, you do whatever you want to do, and it's a similar situation as Japan in the sixties, where or maybe the fifties, where the cars of Toyotas and stuff. People are like, yeah, why? Well, I'll never buy those. And then suddenly, you know, there's a huge ramp up of the industry, and you never know where it's going to go. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not telling you that Comac will be uh, on par with Airbus and and Boeing, but surely you have the means and the will to try. Yeah. 
Uh, back to the U.S. with Southwest. Southwest Airlines says this is quite disturbing news. They had to temporarily ground 128. And for other airlines, that's a substantial portion. But for Southwest, it's about 30% of their airplanes. Uh, because they had missed inspections, absolutely mandatory inspections, FAA's deemed uh, inspections. They'd missed them. They never carried them out. And so they had to ground 20% of their fleet. Wow. Yeah. Uh, they've they've gone and and uh, and performed the the necessary inspections. Of course, all was well. But the the wording of the statement was amusing to say the least. It says Southwest Airlines discovered an overdue maintenance check required to be performed on the standby hydraulic system, which serves as a backup to the primary. So lots of like. We just happened to notice it because it sounds so insignificant because it's a backup to a backup, <laughs> <laughs> and they. But I think they got a reprieve from the from FA, the FAA saying, "Yeah, you can the, fly. The, the, you can fly yeah, them the FAA get said, it done. Yeah, get it done. You can, you can keep flying them and get it done. But it's true that it's a bit disturbing that they would just, oops, I forgot. Yeah, and you That's, wonder uh, if that it would have ever been caught had the FAA not caught it. I, I love Southwest. I think they're a great airline. They've done so much for the industry globally, but this. Is not the first time they've had their wrist slaps for yeah. I was about to say that yeah, exactly. Issues. Um, it seems almost uh, endemic in the organization. But if you if you so, so the next piece of news is exactly about this as well. I mean, there was uh, the United Airline uh, has uh, issued a, a report that was caught by I think it was ABC News, uh, which blames uh, a. Which basically shows that there was a lot of issues in the past weeks. It's a the, the, it's a brutally honest safety bulletin honest. The, that that was sent to uh, the pilots, and they were apparently uh, following four incidents that involved uh, flight crew errors that were classified as a major safety events and near misses. So that's also worrisome. And, and but the uh, I'll put the link. The actual report, the the, the bulletin, the, that safety report is really really honest they it's it's actually pretty admirable that it did this. i agree some of them some of the details are are quite disturbing actually yes um <laughs> and I, I you can't send a memo like this at an organization of united size and not expect it to get leaked so i again i think it shows admirable candor and in a weird way an enhanced commitment to safety that they're being so um open and transparent about these types of issues because when you do as many flights per day as they do Things happen, and as long as you can, yeah. you know, there's no, there's no disaster at the end of it. You you analyze and you learn and you disseminate those learnings and you move on. Yeah, exactly, and I, and I think it's uh, I, I I think it's a good sign. I mean, obviously, like you said, this report was probably leaked, but at the same time, I think maybe they knew that it would it would be leaked. But I think it's actually uh, uh, this is a good sign. Uh, the way they handled it is much better than the usual PR stuff that you can hear sometimes from from the industry. So I pretty uh, I enjoyed that. Uh, the biggest plane ever. How, how are more people <laughs> get, not you, talking you, about this? You'll have to explain me the purpose of that plane. We go on. Uh, so this just stumbled up in in an idle conversation, sort of twenty five replies down in a thread I was reading that in Mojave in California. They are building what will be the world's largest airplane, not just flying, ever created. Yep, how, right. how we're not going nuts over this collectively as a species is is unbelievable to me. But <laughs> it's it's uh, there's a company called Strato Launch Systems who are building uh, pro, pro, 
platforms to launch satellites and rockets into space from uh, from the ground. So if you've seen Spaceship One uh, and Virgin Galactic and all that stuff, it's just a massively scaled up version of that. It's being actually built by scaled composites who built Spaceship One, who built building all the space the uh, the Virgin Galactic rockets. But the scale of this airplane is staggering. Uh, a wingspan of 385 feet. Yeah, that's 117 meters. That's, yeah, so 65 feet w- longer than uh, the Spruce Goose. <laughs> and nearly 100 feet longer than the, the Antonov 225. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's insane. So they are, to, in metrics... Uh, so the, the throttle launch is 117 meters, the Hughes is 97.5, and the Antonov is 88.4. As a reference, an Airbus A380 is approximately 80 meters, so uh, it's really huge. And it's, uh, I, love the, I love the philosophy. I mean, Scaled Composites is one of the most extraordinary organizations that have ever participated in this industry. They they are so far out there in what they imagine that it's just it's captivating, really. Uh, but the way that they're putting this together, I love. It's kind of hacked together from parts, you know, of other things. Like the, the whole fuselage is, is composite, so it doesn't actually weigh that much. But it's going to have six engines, uh, <laughs> Pratt & Whitney engines, along with other parts. And I'm quoting from an article here from two ex-United Airlines Boeing 747-400s. It's like they just went out and like, oh, we need one of those. It's just take- <laughs> So it's it's really pretty amazing. It's only going to weigh about two hundred thousand pounds, which is without the engines, which is which is amazing. And to give you one more visualization of the size, picture a, an American football pitch, which is a hundred yards. If the plane was positioned on the fifty-yard line, the wingtips would hang over the goalposts by fifteen feet on each side. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's well, that's. Really, I, I mean, I hope I can see that. Yeah, it's gonna it's, it's, it's going to fly actually. in a year. And for those of you that ever have the opportunity, if you're ever in LA, Mojave is about an hour, ninety minute drive from LA, and it is just a sight to behold. I strongly recommend you do it. Just don't do it in the summer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The other, uh, yeah, just quickly here, the the other plane, if you like very large uh, planes. Solar Impulse, which is a, a solar airplane, which is also very big. It's uh, it's uh, not as big, obviously. It's uh, it's uh, the the wingspan is probably is uh, bigger than an uh, seven four seven, but slightly smaller than a three eighty. Is in uh, is in the United Emirates um, right now, and it will start its uh, world tour very soon. That's also a very large aircraft. You see, uh, I've put some pictures on the blog a few weeks ago. I'll, I'll put the link there. This is also a nice aircraft to see. Uh, moving on to an aircraft we both love. The 747, in a very short, brief news, I read an article the other day, and I know that you love that that plane as much as I yeah. do. And uh, the um, the Museum of Flight has restored uh, the first ever 747. So that, that's the one that uh, got out of uh, the factories in 1968 to the original test library and everything. It's I really want to go to see so it. So amazing. So amazing. Yeah. 001, it's it's so important to aviation and and the airline world in general that I the, the, the there's a quote in this article that that Paul found where the uh, the chap who's sort of curating the entire project said he frowned no museum anywhere has ever faced a restoration product project of this magnitude. 
Yeah. And all these guys, that's the thing. It's it's also a beauty in terms that these, you know, it's it's a museum. So these guys were restoring uh, all uh, pe- passionate people trying to restore every single bit of that plane to its original state. Mm. It's, in the mo- yeah. I'll put the article. It's, it's amazing to read. Uh, you, can, you can see the dedication. And I'm sure that the result must be really amazing to witness. Absolutely. I, I cannot wait. And I wish them well. And I hope they get the support financially and otherwise that they deserve. Correct. Uh, moving on to the uh, innovation part of the show, we both were at Mobile World Congress. Obviously, Mobile World Congress is not an airline conference, uh, an aviation conference, sorry. So this is not where you're going to find uh, a lot of, of stuff about aviation. But we're still able to find a little, a few things uh, during the, the, the holes there. It's a huge, this huge, massive conference. Uh, the one that really caught my eye is IBM. So IBM has been partnering with Apple uh, so, which is when you think about it, by itself, pretty insane. A few years, you know, like twenty years ago, these two were like big, the biggest rivals, and now they're basically partnered together. So, IBM is uh, proposing uh, apps and uh, solutions for enterprise through iOS, so the Apple um, iPhone operating system. And uh, one of the uh, showcases, and I went to the booth and I got a little demo, is an app that uh, that uh, can ease the way of uh, staff handling issues at the airport. So let's say you arrive, Alex, at the gate because uh, uh, you have your crazy flights from, <laughs> from Barcelona to the Isle of Man, and you know suddenly you know the plane is delayed or you were too late, etc. What do they do? Usually, you know, they have to make phone calls. They have to find information, and within a single app, there they can actually do a lot of those. And that's that's is really really interesting. That's very cool. That's very cool. And I wonder if the the request to do that came from the airlines or if it's something that IBM just came up with on their own. So they 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 say in the press release uh, that I read afterwards that one of the foundational clients for this initiative, the iOS mobile solution, is Air Canada. Oh, interesting. So I was thinking they, they don't say that the app was made for Air Canada, not, nor that the app would be used by Air Canada. But I think it's a showcase app. Mm. But maybe, of course, there was a lot of input from from Air Canada, and uh, maybe they will even use it to trial it. I don't know. We'll, we'll learn pretty soon, but it's. Uh, it's really interesting to see how the efficiency uh, of an airport could be dealt with uh, with such an app. So that was one thing that we saw. Uh, another thing that w- it was not on display at Mobile World Congress, but it's linked with it. I mean, you and me saw tons and tons of smartwatches, yeah, right? Yeah, oh, they were all over the place. <laughs> exactly. Most of them. By the way, let, let's be let's be brutally honest ourselves here. There's nothing that really wowed us in that conference. It seems everybody comes up with a yet another phone, a yet another. Yeah, there was nothing uh, that was watch. like, holy cow, look at that. Yeah, exactly. That, but there are stuff that happen behind the scenes, and one of those is uh, so uh, Virgin Atlantic uh, is actually trialing, um, starting a trial ethro uh, with. Uh, wearable technologies to assist the staff uh so to again similar as what i just said about ibm but this is for more general for the entire the entire customer experience here you can so if it's going paperless is being able to con- connect all the staff together the engineering the maintenance etc so and they do that with sony so that's a that's a pretty interesting uh that's a pretty interesting development as well again all these are trials so we keep mentioning here trials we talked about google glass from sheepal i think it was last mm. week we talked about uh uh, I think I've written an article a few months ago about uh, 
Jal uh, also trialing smartwatches in Haneda Airport in Japan. So all these are trials, but it's interesting to see how these are. Yeah, and kudos to everybody for for experimenting and trying. You're never going to improve passenger experience unless you try things like this. So admirable. And the, and the the last the last one uh, I met that was not at the conference itself but one of the networking events, I met a Reja Snodgrass is the is the founder of Wearable World. So again, uh, talking about uh, wearables here, uh, it's a big. Uh, there's no name for it. It's an incubator, accelerator, everything you can think about in San Francisco. The, the interesting tidbit though is that they've done uh, a two day hackathon with American Airlines. Uh, so they brought up. A lot of people from American Line Lines in their in their uh, um, offices, uh, and they they forced them to see what innovation could be about. And apparently, it was it was a big success. And since then, they're now starting working from San Francisco Airport. Uh, they're also working with other airports and partners in the world now. And I uh, I love the idea of having of putting people out from you know their usual office and the usual industry and say, okay, look. Take a step back and try to understand it from another perspective, yeah. and I think that that's a pretty interesting way of doing absolutely, things. absolutely. I think we've got a, an exciting two years ahead of us in this space. Talking about uh, keeping uh, the the smartwatch because that's uh, something you, you're about to uh, to introduce as a piece of news. Uh, we said in episode 004 that uh, Ryanair wanted to become a a better airline for the passenger journey. So, you know, from the moment you're in your hotel to the moment you arrive at the airport, to you board the plane and you in-flight experience, and then you leave, uh, you you deplane and you leave the airport, which, you know, coming from Ryanair, which is obviously often linked to a very bad customer experience, was was a pretty bold statement. And I I had said back then that one of their ideas was actually, uh, uh, you know, using smartwatches. And we kind of laughed it off a little bit saying, okay, well, there's other stuff to to do first. But you found something that proves that they are actually thinking much broader. Yeah, they they have a lot of catch up to do. I think that they were late to the game on a lot of the digital stuff. And they admit that. So as you mentioned, they've embarked on this two-year or multi-year program called Always Getting Better, where they're looking at improving without actually saying they're improving <laughs> the product from end to end so they're <laughs> they're actually doing everything from redesigning the inside of the airplane new uniforms better food but they're pushing digital hard they just released a new website about six months ago to a year ago and it's kind of been in- incrementally changing ever since but they did an event last week that that said we are going to be a mobile first digital airline and it was interesting the way they said it by the end and i'm quoting here by the end of 2015 we will be a mobile first airline and we aim to become europe's number one travel retail platform bold statement which just happens to specialize in flights so they are built it sounds like they're building an entire commerce and distribution platform for not just flights but but other things as well but when they went on to specifics it was like Okay, this nothing strikes me as hugely innovative here. So a native app for iOS and Android by the end of March. Okay, uh, hold my fair. Well, then again, then again, finally, right? Ex- well, and exactly, you know, I, you said you, you said it's catch up catching for, for up. Part so of it. hold my fair features, fair comparison, inter- integrated into the search results, which actually is is pretty cool. Uh, personalized website. It's a lot of stuff that's already done. You know, 
And then when well, what, 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 what I like is that they uh, in that same uh, in that same breath they also finally I would also say they, they they're looking into expanding their relationships with you know distribution the yeah. And all their, yeah the distribution so that's interesting yeah that helps that will help a lot uh, it's not easy to find a Ryanair flight on anything that's not just Ryanair.com um, but good for that I flew Ryanair two twice in the last couple of days and it it was fine it was what I expected it to be and my expectations were low and they met those expectations so they were reasonably on time. It's obviously very safe. They're all brand new airplanes. So you get what you pay for. No, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, th- there's something to be said. I mean, even though you and I, I've been sometimes a little bit, uh, you know, criticizing Ryanair. At the end of the day, it's uh, it's it's also the airline that people, um, you know, love to hate. Yeah. Uh, most of the time, it actually works. You know, there's, the, the stories <laughs> that you hear are the stories of, you know, the plane is delayed or the plane has a problem, and then there's no other plane to come catch you. But it, Let's be honest. I had these kind of problems with traditional airlines as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's- and I, although I have to say, I because they're a low cost carrier, uh, you pay to pick your seat. Uh, Correct. And I wanted a window seat, as I always want a window seat. We'll actually talk about that a little bit later. So yes. I booked my seat. I paid my extra money for my window seat. Get on the airplane, sit down, and there's no freaking window. It's just a wall. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is the worst window seat ever. <laughs> I had to laugh. There's nothing I could do about it. It was 100% full flight. But I was like, can I have my money back, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will talk about in a, in, a, in a few about, you know, the, which seat you choose, you should choose in a plane. But yeah, that's, oh, wow. That happened to me once. Uh, but uh, like, yeah, well. So I talk here in the same breath. A very short pieces of news. Uh, there's a startup called Options Away. So you just mentioned that Ryanair will introduce a hold my fair. So hold my fair is you probably have seen that in some websites, uh, some airlines provide that service. When you find a fare, I know Air France, for instance, does it. Uh, you find a fare and like, oh, I'm not sure I wanna I wanna book yet, but okay, I'm gonna have I'm gonna pay a small fee. And my fear will be held at that price for 24 yeah, hours. Yeah, Cathay so do that as well. Yeah, it's an it's and the idea has always been interesting. Uh, and what I liked about this startup that just got a new round of funding, and I'll put the link if, for the people that are actually interested in, in in that type of details. But is that they're right now this type of hold uh, hold your fare uh, solution is made airline by airline, not airlines. Uh, not all the airlines obviously offer this. They try to offer this like on a for on a very much wider level, uh, and that's I think it's uh, it's it, because they could. So they have already stricken. Um, Deals with Hipmunk, uh, which was the app of the week a few a few weeks ago, and also Expedia, and there. So they're trying to they're trying to expand this experience of being able to have an option of a of single fare on a much wider level. It and looks awesome. It's pretty, yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty cool. And this is exactly what startups can probably do, and the type of innovation they can offer. Because we know the air, the airline industry is is very difficult to work with. At, at Mobile World Congress, I, I also met some. Uh, uh, one a, a mobile consulting company that works with German Wings in Lufthansa, and uh, while I'm not be able to reveal all the details from that conversation, uh, what was really the the, imp- the interesting tidbit is that they really struggle with all the legacy software that you know the airlines are are using, and you, you have to adapt with something that you are a much more leaner, agile, modern type of software, and you yeah. try to have to all this to piece all this together. It's not always easy, which is why. 
you sometimes startups have a have a difficult time in this industry. Is uh, you cannot just like disrupt the entire industry because you just release a one piece of software. You have to interface so many legacy. Yeah, it's and not old easy. You're, you're always falling back on the weakest link or oldest link in the chain. Talking about oldest link, the <laughs> the, the passport. Yeah, the good old analog <laughs> I mean, good, paper good. passport. I mean, I don't think that's going to ever change. Uh, maybe, I mean, I mean, I've seen that in Dubai, for instance. Now you can have your driver's license in, in on, on your mobile. So I don't know, but interesting. It's interestingly to enter the U.S. Uh, you can. Uh, I think they started like a few months ago. I, I think it was last summer. Had written a, a bit on layovers that uh, you have an app on your phone, and this is how you can clear immigration much faster. Very cool. So you can basically. Submit your passport information and custom declaration via your smartphone, which, by the way, also has a selfie thing, so you can actually take a selfie, and that will be your the picture that will be put onto your application. <laughs> so the first trial had started; in, uh, it was in Atlanta. Uh, it's it's obviously limited to U.S. US citizens and, and uh, uh, Canadian visitors uh, for the moment in single airport, and they just announced the second airport, which is uh, Miami. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's, I think that's a pretty interesting, so you have your dedicated, uh, queue, so you don't go through the usual, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, 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 that's pretty interesting, uh, uh, pretty interesting uh, piece of, uh, of innovation. I think they want to go to expand to more than 20 airports. I will just say, because if anybody from customs in US hears me, uh, for border control in the US hears me, you should do that for ESTA as well, because, you know, we have to as, uh, so ESTA is a waiver program. Uh, which I just have to fill out a, a piece of, of uh, a few bits of information online, and that grants me uh, two-year entry into the U.S. Uh, I think I still ha- I still have to go to a normal queue, mm-hmm. and I would actually love to be able to use that as well. Because since anyway, all the information is already digital because I fill it that out. Would I would be like, would love to, <laughs> to use to use this as well. Uh, Starwood Uber again. Yeah. So the. Two great travel companies, uh, Uber and Starwood, who are have are becoming fast becoming the go to points uh, program in travel, not just in hotels. Now you can uh, you earn Starwood preferred guest points when you use Uber, so it's dollar for point or point for dollar, which is which is amazing, and uh, they're just cementing themselves as as where savvy travelers go and they because they've got all these wonderful dollar for dollar relationships with airlines so you can Correct. you can kind of go in through starwood and go out through a redeem through a different airline so it's it, it's it's really really interesting what i didn't know in this article is that at uber's most recent round of funding they're valued in equity and debt at 40 billion dollars which is the same as delta like <laughs> <laughs> oh that extraordinary <laughs> Yes, it is actually. But it's very, very savvy of Uber to do this and partner with other peripheral companies, peripheral to them in the in the travel and airline space. So they did something last year where you can redeem American Airlines, pardon me, American Express points. You can redeem them for to get an Uber car and vice versa. So they're just spreading their reach further and further and further. Very, very smart. That's very smart indeed. Uh, I know that uh, already on on Google Maps. Uh, so if you look in Google Maps on your phone, you have in some uh, cities you have the option to actually book an Uber directly there. Google Venture is an investor in Uber, I, I believe. So maybe that's why. But it's uh, they're really they're expanding their reach very, very, very Pretty quickly. Incredible. Uh, talking about uh, Google, uh, we mentioned Google Flights. 
many times, I think, on this show, and it finally got out of beta. Uh, so basically, now anyone who's actually go on Google.com, you know, on the top of the page, you have news, images, etc., and you'll find flights. So now the the flights is actually officially part of Google, uh, of uh, yeah, of Google the properties. The two interesting tidbits here. Uh, one is that we learn. I learned through this that it's actually not making money yet yeah, for Google. That's that's pretty interesting. I I think honestly the reason is that when Google bought ITA, I think it was four years ago or something. The Department of Justice in the U.S. put a lot of limitations on what Google could do because for antitrust, they didn't want Google to ditch all the customers of ITA in one go and just suddenly own the market. But there is a timeline for this. In October 2016, which is not that far when you think about mm. it, Google will have more free hands to do whatever they want. I think they're just waiting. They, you know, they they. they Taking their time, making a good product, and I believe that uh, starting in October 2016, we might see new things happening with them. Another tidbit that I learned this is, was: you remember we both said that it was extremely fast, unbelievably That's what fast. We and actually, it's because uh, Google is constantly pre-computing all uh, the different. Well, if anybody routes. can do it, it's them. Yeah, they have the biggest cloud operation in the world. They have servers all around the world, so they can actually do that. It's constantly done. So obviously, when you do the query, your search results has already been computed. So that's wow. why it gives it to you like in a like a split second. It's, it's fast really becoming the flight search of choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for for me too, actually. Yeah, still still some stuff you cannot find there. I mean, yeah, still some airlines are not there, but it's really, really, really impressive. Yeah. Um Still talking about booking fares, we met, Hipmunk was, uh, which we already mentioned today, but Hipmunk was our app of the weekend. We learned a trick. This is amazing. You, this, you, you found this and sent it to me, and we both kind of started freaking out. Because when you find a great fare on ITA, on the Matrix, and you've done all kinds of manipulation, you put in your fares and your routes and don't go by here, but do go by here, blah, 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 and you've got it, and it's like super cheap and everything, you can't actually book on the ITA matrix software, you have to call the airline and walk them through the exact fare code that you want to be booked. And it's a laborious process. Well, it turns out that with a little bit of work, you can book those flights using Hipmunk. Yeah, that, and that's amazing. I didn't, you know, I've been using Hipmunk for all this time. And, you know, there are two boxes, like in every booking fair site. You know, if you have the two and from and two, and you put either you put the name, uh, people like you and me would put the three letter air, um, airport code. But what I didn't know is that if you if you put an airport code and then you put two uh, two columns, you can actually start coding a little bit like you do on. Uh, I will put the link obviously on the website layovers two because it's hard to explain on a podcast. But you can do a lot of stuff. You can say I want to travel via there. I want to. I want to. These are the airports I want to take layovers in. I mean, it's pretty. Inter- you cannot do everything the ITA does, obviously. But like you just said, Alex, you can now actually plan the route you wanted from the start. So, and that's really, so really useful. cool. So useful. Uh, taking us back to the 80s, because for me, uh, when Alex submitted that piece of news that he's going to introduce you now, uh, an advanced supersonic helicopter, for me, was Airwolf. Yeah. Do you remember that TV show? Of course I do. The greatest <laughs> theme song ever written. So, yeah, just... Tell me, what, what is that So thing? I had no idea. This shows my ignorance in the helicopter space that Airbus made helicopters. And they have done for a long time. Uh, and I learned this when I was looking through a copy of Flight International last week. 
But they've just announced that they have made the world's first all-composite civil helicopter that will do 185 miles an hour at cruise and almost silence. And it is the most extraordinary aircraft I have ever seen. Now, the reason why I probably didn't know about Airbus helicopters is it because it used to be called Eurocopter, which I did know. I just didn't know it was Airbus. So this this it not only does it look totally futuristic and airwolfy, but the rotor blades have these sort of rakes at the end of them. They're not just yeah, flat. They yeah. look like like you know the Grim Reaper's sickle. <laughs> and they really are amazing. So it'll carry 12 passengers for about 120 miles. At, like I said, at 185 miles an hour, all glass cockpit, really just a, a mesmerizing airplane. If you guys get a chance, read the article that we're going to post and watch the video because I've never seen anything like this thing. Yeah, for me, the article really sounded like science it fiction does, or something it? because, you know, like, you know, the, the blade vortex interaction <laughs> with shaping. the, And you look at the blade of the helicopter. This is why, like, this is science yeah. fiction. This is the next, I don't know, Aven- Avengers movie <laughs> or something. <laughs> really impressive. Really impressive. Uh, so, app of the week. Uh, we were, uh, uh, you and me in, in Barcelona, you showed me this, uh, which I didn't really know. I, I stumbled upon one time. So... When uh, I flew from London to Zurich, uh, there was a lot of weather disruption here in the UK. That was on Sunday, so my flight was pretty bumpy. That was okay. But in Barcelona, we both left uh, yesterday, which was Wednesday. There was this huge disturbance of the weather. Um, my flight was delayed. We were on the ground for a long time. First of all, the plane didn't land. was in holding for uh, quite a while. Then we also waited on the tarmac before leaving and the, the write-up was really bumpy and you showed me something this, that was pretty cool this is a, a website and i think they have an app but that certainly works fine on a mobile that i've been using for 10 years called turbulenceforecast.com and it's basically a collection of aviation weather maps relating to turbulence and in, for the U.S., it is extremely detailed. You can get advisories. You can get near real-time pilot reports of turbulence, um, turbulence potential, wind maps, blah, blah, blah. Here in Europe, we have some fantastic maps that show turbulence potential from light light to moderate, moderate to severe, uh, and severe color-coded across a map of Europe between 12 and 24 hours. So you can glance at a map and go, okay – uh, I can see that in this area, it's going to be a little bit bumpy. It doesn't guarantee turbulence. It's just an advisory between flight level 200, which is 20,000 feet, and 450, which is 45,000 feet. But it can at least give you a sense of what's going to happen. Like, I'm just looking at it right now. And yeah, still going out of Barcelona, it's going to be a little bit bumpy going over the Pyrenees. And then it's absolutely smooth as silk going up. Uh, for the rest of the ride up to up to London, but it's really kind of fun to play with. Another s- section that they have are the eastbound and westbound transatlantic tracks. So, if you're not familiar with the way that planes go uh, go across the Atlantic, they ha- because there's no radar coverage, they have to stick to very predefined routes uh, across the Atlantic. They don't deviate from them at all, and so you can see on this on these maps the various tracks and areas for potential turbulence and where the jet streams are so you can get a sense pretty quickly if you're going to have a smooth ride a rough ride a fast ride or a slow ride it's it's fun to glance at it's not gospel but it's something that i i get a kick out of looking at yeah and, which now we'll start doing actually yeah, it's good don't let it <laughs> no it's really yeah. honestly it's really, it's really good 
I, I really, and it really actually shows you information. Like, as you say, it's not gospel, but it's it's uh, it's a really nice trick to have. You just mentioned uh, the absence of radar coverage across the Antarctic. So the next, uh, the, the 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 topic of the week, it's a bit of a sad topic of the week. Is one of the biggest mysteries in the airline industry. So it's almost a year ago now. Day to day was March eighth. That MH370, the air, so the Malaysian airline, uh, disappeared completely, and we still don't know where the plane is. Uh, so we figured we will talk a little bit about this uh, today. There's a lot of theories because obviously, when suddenly a plane disappears and never shows up again, you're starting to like create all these, you know, what really happened? Was it hijacked? Did he just crash? Was it, you know, some people go tell us that it was intercepted by any other country. We just don't know. It's, it's right? It really is unbelievable, isn't it? That we, it's been missing for a year and we have found nothing. Not a single shred of anything. No debris, no life jacket, no nothing in a year. And, and... Yeah, and, and the car and the, the actual search, even though now, of course, is not in the headlines as much as it used to. The, the search is one; it's huge, it's massive. They've been searching an area that is so big, and it's looking for you know a little in a haystack. And we have absolutely no clue. So the first thing we might say is that, of course, when the the, the plane disappeared from radar. That's the problem, and this coming back to what you just said about the absence of radar coverage. There's no radar coverage, so you don't know where it is. And then the second problem, of course, is that there's no life yet. And we'll go to that in a little bit. There's no life tracking of aircrafts. There was really no way to know where it was. Uh, on top of that, you add the fact that there were Let's be honest here. The Malaysian authorities were not really good at handling all this, so that created a lot of distrust uh, about where what well where they're telling everything or not, uh, where the military actually telling everything or not. Nobody knew. Then, so, so for there was a long time. And you people, you do remember pretty much all of you. There was a long time with for the first two three weeks, people were completely confused. Uh, and then in Marsat came into play and uh, they they do to make it if you want to explain it more but i don't want to take too much time today but they have a via pings they were able to say that the plane can be and that's very broad from kazakhstan to the north to basically australia to the south yeah. <laughs> but but on an actually limited range which which has uh, the form of a the form of a, a circle so and uh, and that's where they started looking but still there's Absolutely nothing. Nothing after a year. After absolutely nothing. What do you think that will end up find, finding that plane? I I initially thought that yes, they will find it. But now, as every day goes by, I just I don't think that they will. I don't think that they will. If it crashed into the ocean in any capacity for whatever reason, uh, it's a needle in a haystack in a stack of needles in a haystack. I mean, it's just. It's the, just the, the sheer volumes of, of, of area that have to be covered are quite extraordinary that I just don't think it's going to do it. And, and the worst part is, is, you know, you, you say about the Inmarsat pings, which are really the kind of thread that's holding all of these theories together. The, the, the pings have no data in them. Some of them were spurious pings to begin with. And as you said, the Malaysian government wasn't exactly forthcoming with the uh, the data as available, and didn't release the raw data for weeks after the after the incident had happened. 
So I, I don't know. And, and as you say, all of these strange theories have come out in... in yeah, the, the, la the last one I will put maybe the article, the last one is obviously, again, coming back to the hijack possibility uh, because this, uh, I don't remember the name of that person, but there's this author said that, you know, on 777s, you can access a special bay. We could have then actually kind of... Uh, Fake the pings, yeah. Yeah, fake the pings. So basically, the, air, the the aircraft, you know, people would have believed it was going south, but actually it was going north. I mean, but that's the thing. When you have, and I'm not saying he's wrong. I have really literally absolutely no clue. But the point is that when you have Malaysian authorities that were not forthcoming, Malaysian airlines that really was not that great in handling the situation, they even texted the, the people to say, oh, you know what? We lost yeah. the plane, right? That's not very good. So you have all this. Plus you have so uh, it's seemingly authorities that uh, were uh, putting out contractory uh, messages at the beginning, uh, even, even, you know, the uh, the the chief commissioner of the uh, the Australian Transport Safety Board, uh, because probably he was actually limited to what he could say uh, because of, of you know of, of regulations. Mm. The way he said things that all this is a fertile ground for conspiracy theories. So now, of course, some people will tell you that you know the Russians got it. Some other people will tell you that the CIA shut it down. Some people will tell you that aliens got it. Some people will tell you that it was actually hijacked, but it turned out wrong. Some other people that said the pilot uh, tried to hijack, but then it was something. And maybe it's just the pilots were just incapacitated and the plane just crashed its own crash after you know running out right. of fuel. That's the thing. It will, nobody knows. So maybe we can, uh, unless you want to add something, we can maybe think... How can we? Do you think that the industry will ever go into something uh, tracking planes? In yeah, a I'm. Way? I'm sure that they will. I'm sure that they will because, and I think that this incident has highlighted the need for it, or at least the opportunity for it. But it will be the same with all cases of aviation innovation. It's great to have, and the the rich, advanced, new airplane type carriers will Correct. all have it implemented. There will be a whole market of technology and products and infrastructure that will facilitate these every 15-minute pings or real-time tracking. But it's the you know the 35-year-old A300 cargo plane or 727 that's running you know in in sub-Saharan Africa that that's in an accident that won't have that, and the airline that owns it won't have right. the ability to or the or the financial means to install it. So, but that said. If one airplane has it, it's better than none. So I I, I hope it's something that 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 gets done. With, with regard to this theory, to all of these theories, some of them are pretty friggin' crazy. <laughs> yes, I mean, you know, it's like you look at these pictures and people suddenly, you know, they oh, they they, they spot a, 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 some kind of a, a abandoned piece of land in the middle of nowhere, like in, in ex-USSR uh, Republic, and they say, look, the plane must have been here for a while. And you're like, it's impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that chap said it landed in a, on an abandoned aerodrome in, in Kazakhstan, and the Russians were involved. It's, it's quite extraordinary. But, but coming back to tracking, it's true that uh, – so let's not forget it's not the first time there were calls for live, uh, live tracking. There was being uh, 
when Air France uh, Flight 447 crashed into the Atlantic Ocean from Rio to Paris, uh, even though we we knew there pretty much close more, more closely where it could have been, he also took a few a, a little bit of time to find it, and uh, the IATA decided to launch uh, a, a, a task force about looking into uh, into this back then. And we're talking 2009, so it's been already. Uh, more than six years now that they've been looking at it. But as you say, the issue is that not all airlines can move at the same yeah. speed when it comes to uh, technology. So these, it seems like you kind of hinted at it, the, the middle way right now would be to have a system that brings a ping every 15 minutes because that would not be too costly. There are there there some people saying it would just add $2 uh, uh, to the cost of a long-distance flight. So that's not that much. Uh, there's this... Apparently, there's one solution that, that, that we'll be looking at. To be honest, the other, when you think about it, there's two things here. There's one thing is the location of the plane, and the other thing is the actual data sent by the plane. And that's another thing that could be done, which also will cost a yeah. lot of money, which is to say, not only I get, oh, where the plane, but I also get, you know, what the black yeah. box is not actually in the black box. In the cloud. It, data is live, is live streamed directly. Yeah. Oh, and there's a, there's a, you know, a load of middle ground there. So you'd be getting live streaming of cockpit voice and everything like that, but also critical instrument readouts, whether the autopilot is engaged, things like that, which would have helped solve those problems and 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 many other plane crashes which are ultimately solved, but sol- they can help them solve them a lot faster. I mean, we're still not sure what brought down that Air, Air Asia plane, which is which was cra- crashed several months ago. Mm-hmm. We're still they have the black boxes. I'm sure they're going to come up with a report pretty soon, but again that type of information and, and and data would be would be so valuable to ask accident investigators yeah and and, and even uh, even if some of these plans are adopted in terms either of life tracking or uh, just a location or both uh, so sorry that data streaming or life tracking uh, it might be that because of what you just said uh, not only of course, the most rich airlines will be able to do it, but also there might be a regulation that says only the upcoming airlines will have it. There's no won't, won't be any retrofit, so it will take forever yeah. to actually replace to have that system put in place. The only airline that has a currently uh, live tracking is Qatar Airways. Uh, so uh, again, we just talked about the airline that has a lot of money. They they started to to they started to put uh, monitoring systems monitoring in their planes. They don't exactly say who's who's doing it in which planes. I think they're testing it. Is that only PR or not? I don't know. But you know, it shows that you know Qatar Airways can do it. Probably, like you said, a small airline in the middle of of nowhere cannot. And and others, if they're not forced to, I'm not sure that Ryanair. Again, I don't want to bash Ryanair, but the business model is look. You know, we want you, the, the the margins of the airline industry are already so thin. So unless I'm forced to actually do it, I'm not exactly going to do it. exactly. And I. I think there, we should be very clear about this. It is so rare and unusual and bizarre to lose an airplane that uh, absolutely. It, I mean, it's yeah. it's it's it borders lines on the supernatural. It just does not happen, given the scale and sheer amount of daily movements around the world. These incidents are so rare that you can understand why some airline executives are, are like, yeah, but this doesn't have to. And it, ha- it is happening less and less as years go by. 
So it's a difficult debate. It's a really difficult debate. Uh, I would say I, I, I'm not a specialist, but I met a startup at Mobile Congress that does a new type of passive uh, trackers, uh, very long range uh, passive trackers. It's, it's extremely interesting. I'll find the name of the company. You can, you can passive tracking of and, of planes. No, of oh. everything. So it's just a little device that is that it's which battery lasts for one year. So there's no, there's very low frequency. It's using a frequency that is free to use, uh, but that was normally used for a short, you know, like you, your car keys. You know, when you, you if you press on the button and it opens, it opens your car. The same type of frequencies, uh, this this startup was able, and they're really well funded now. But the startup was able to transform the short range into something very long range uh-huh. and suddenly you need only a few antennas to actually cover an entire country like france because the company started in france you know what near toulouse which of course is very close to airbus so uh, this is why i mentioned to these guys said what about our, our airplane tracking could you just add this on an airplane it will be passive so there is no like real streaming of data and stuff but since it's, it uses satellite system that, that these are the kind of solutions wow. that could be very cheap in a way to implement while still allowing some kind of tracking. But then again, let's not forget it. Even if we knew when the plane crashed, then, and that was the, the thing with Air France uh, Flight 447, then, you know, the oceans, you know, there's like currents and stuff, and it takes forever to actually even get to, to the black box, to even get, you know, the passengers and to find the debris. And uh, in the case of Air France, it was even very, deep, very yeah. deep. So, you know, it's not going to, like, I agree with you, it's not going to solve everything. This kind of uh, people think, like, they, you know, of course we talk about disasters because they're very, you know, they touch us deeply because, you know, there's like suddenly in a single accident, 300 people disappear or die. But at the same time, like Lou said, it happens very, very so rarely. And I understand why the population and travelers would like to have first a closure, a closure and say, oh, we want to know what happened, but also that they would like to have some kind of light tracking, but it doesn't actually, does it make sense? I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to give... A definite answer, but unless it's cheap, I don't think it will happen anytime soon. So, so the question of the week uh, comes from your wife. <laughs> it does, yeah. She she asked me this the other day, and I thought it was such a good question for discussion because it's something that everybody has a very strong opinion on, and it is simply window, middle, or aisle, and why. <laughs> well, how do we answer that? <laughs> well, what do you choose? I mean, what, what's your what's your seat of choice? Uh, well, a window. Really? Honestly, if, I, if, I can, if I can get a window, I prefer a window overall. I but, mean, you know what they say. They say the people that choose a seat on the window are the dreamers, the people that want the experience. And because maybe I love flying, I want the experience. The people that choose AL are the get-things-done people because they want to work. Uh, I, don't have, I don't think I absolutely agree with that because when you're on the AL, you People, especially in long haul flights, people want to, you know, you just step out and you have to keep moving out, which is what actually bothers me the most. Because as a tall person, I'm, I'm 6'4, 195 centimeters. Uh, it's true that the ale uh, allows me an economy to stretch my legs, which usually um, the window doesn't. Yeah, that's, then again, that's why I thought you might be an aisle guy. I'm an emergency exit guy. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Uh, window without. I uh, see. Yeah, not even a thing. Like <laughs> mainly because I like to be able to look out of it. 
Yeah, exactly. I love it. I mean, it's, you know, that's the point. We're flying for God's sakes. We're, we're, we're 36,000 feet, you know, above exactly. the, the things that you get to see up there. Are amazing. I, I absolutely 100% aisle. Um, and I guess there's always that there's the etiquette, isn't there? There's the arm, the armrest etiquette, which I understand oh, yeah. goes the, the person in the window gets the view person in the aisle gets the access and the person in the middle gets the armrest, which, you know what? Fair enough. Yeah, it's actually absolutely right. Fair enough. I, I would say I would say though that before you fly, if you want to ch- choose a seat, there's two things. First, more and more airlines are introducing a, a tiered system of pricing because they want to, of course, make money, which means that the middle seat, which is usually the one that no one wants to choose on purpose, will be the cheapest one, uh, and they will actually pay, ask you to pay a premium for window and or ale. And of course, emergency exits even more sometimes, and the bulkhead even more, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you have a choice, of course, try to avoid the middle seat because it's never really honestly. I've done a Beijing, uh, Frankfurt, I think it no Beijing Amsterdam uh, almost ten years ago in a middle seat of a seven four seven. Me, my height, in economy. That was one of the worst nightmare ever. Trust oh me. my god! Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But at that time, what I didn't do, which I do now, I go on Seat Guru, for instance, which provides you with a lot of, you know, layouts of planes and you can actually have a better decision because, you know, it doesn't mean anything because sometimes seats are like, you know, three, two, three, 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 two, two. And it depends on the layout of the plane, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. It, it really does. And SeatGuru.com is such a great resource. In, in fact, if I had consulted them before my Ryanair flight, I would have known that there was no window <laughs> on my quote unquote window seat. <laughs> but yeah, I'm a window seat. I, I know it takes a little bit longer to get off the plane, but it's very rare that I'm in a hurry. And if I am, yeah, I plus, accordingly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like for instance, last night I wanted to get out of the plane because I came to, from Zurich to Heathrow and I wanted to get as fast as I could out. So ale for that one so I could get out. But then again, uh, uh, let's be honest, the difference here is also like minimal. Yeah. I mean, even if you're in a hurry, you have a lot of passengers in front of you. So that, that will not change uh, change a lot, right? So um, it's at the end of the day, uh, just try to be smart about it, like you just said. For people who ask that, I don't know your preference, but there are tools around just to actually make a an informed decision. Yes, absolutely. And if your first port of call should always be secure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm tall. Uh, oh, yeah. Story for yesterday was in that flight. The guy behind me, a window seat, uh, he was, uh, believe it or not, 6'10". Whoa. Uh, yeah, 6'10". And I told the guy, like, look, you should just try to get emergency exit and say, oh, how do I do that? I'm like, really? You don't know? <laughs> wow. Not, but, wow. You know, so it's, uh, yeah. So for tall people, it's true that ale in general is better along all flights. Sometimes I would choose ale just for the fact that just I can the, stretch my legs. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, then I get the cart on my toes all the oh, time. Oh, yeah, or all you knocking your elbow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, anyway. Um, Barcelona. So that was the airport of the week because obviously uh, that's where we were both this week. Was it your first time there? It was. I enjoyed it. Well, I went twice. 
Yeah. <laughs> so uh, in both on both accounts, uh, there's two terminals. Terminal one, which is the newest one, was built in around 2009. Terminal two, which used to be the terminal one anyway, which was built for the Olympics in 92. So the terminal two is the one where you have most of the low cost airlines. So is that where you flew? Because I think you flew um, Iberian EasyJet. Uh, no, part, yeah, yeah, EasyJet and Ryanair. So that they were both out of terminal two. Right. Um, which is a strange, strange terminal because large portions of it seem to be unused. Exactly. Empty. Uh, so that's what happened after when they opened Terminal 1, they transferred obviously all the flights to Terminal 1. Then Terminal 2, what they tried to do is they lowered the fees for to attract low-cost airlines there. Uh, but 2A is empty. Yeah, it's a very strange... So yeah, there's, there's, there's segments and sections of Terminal 2. Um, but yeah, it, it was very odd. It seemed strange. I mean, it's a, it's a good airport. It's a very easy, fast, well-lit, beautiful views, organized airport. Uh, and the incredible thing about this airport is that there are multiple ways to get into the center of Barcelona from the airport because there's only 12 kilometers from, from town. Uh, so there's a train, which is like, I think it's four, four euros 90, takes about 25 minutes uh, there is a thing called the Aerobus, which is five euros and takes 30 minutes. Uh, it takes, they leave every 10 minutes, but it's air conditions. It's got free Wi-Fi. It's a pretty good way. And then taxi, obviously, which is, well, it's supposed to take 20 minutes, but during Mobile World Congress, it definitely takes a lot longer than that. <laughs> well, well, this is not a benchmark. I mean, you arrive at Mobile Congress and they, they take over all the, the entire airport. Even There's even badge registration, which is clearly a part of the airport, where usually it's just a checking counter. Yeah. So this is a bit you know, a different airport. Yeah. So it is, it is pretty easy to get into town. Uh, taxi is going to cost like 25 to 35 euros and all the taxi drivers i interacted with were so nice and interesting and chatty yeah i mean it's 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 a pretty modern airport actually that's what they're looking they they're really trying to do if you if you ask them they're really trying to become one of the most efficient airport in europe they are a they have plans so which is strange because i flew from terminal one uh, this is the one i know the most uh because every year i go to mobile congress this is where i flew for, I fly from it's currently there's some um work going on so it's not perfect but i mean it's a good honestly it's a good airport there's even like you can even go outside which is rare and when i say oh, it's outside it's not just a, a, a small balcony there's a place because you know the weather is good so you can actually hang out outside while waiting for your flight Fantastic. which i pretty much like about about it but they're they're built they want to build another uh, a satellite terminal so that currently the the the, the airport is, is as around 37 38 million passengers capacity i think is at around 50 but they want to increase capacity at 70 wow. <laughs> uh, i don't know uh, maybe these for some of the of these plans were made before the crisis but anyway it's a pretty efficient airport one bit of one bit of uh, trivia one of the world's busiest route was from Barcelona at some point. So the Barcelona-Madrid, uh, which is called Puente Aereo, which means the air bridge, basically, mm -hmm. right? It was one of the busiest routes. And then the high-speed train, train was introduced and, you know, ate that cake. So yeah. It's not anymore. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> It's a it's a pretty it's a pretty it's a pretty pretty nice airport. Uh, if you guys can avoid it during Mobile World Congress, do so because it's a bit of a nightmare during that time. It, it has a capacity. When I say nightmare, it's not too much of it, but it seems that you know, like I, the the funniest bit was last year. I was trying to get into the lounge 
the one of the business lounge. And since it's Mobile Congress, everybody has access to the business lounge. And basically, the airport was not full, but the business lounge was completely crowded. And you're like, why would you stay in a business lounge because it's crowded? You know, it's just, oh, well. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway. Well, so I had two observations about that airport when I was there. Uh, one, there were so many private jets in for MWC that they ran out of parking space at the where they traditionally parked and they were parking them at airline gates so that you would walk past where you know an easy jet plane a Ryanair plane and there'd be like these four or five state of the art 50 million dollar G550 planes next to them as well it was pretty incongruous <laughs> um, and the other thing was at terminal 1 taxiing by it and taking off last night it's absolutely overflowing with brand new viewing Airbuses. But mm-hmm. Iberia was conspicuous in its absence, which I thought was really telling of the state of the Spanish aviation market. Yeah, Vueling is really taking over. It's, I think it's one of the hubs for them, if not the main hub, uh, Barcelona Airport. And yeah. it's true that uh, actually it's, it's, to this day, some some flights you would think you're flying BA or Iberia and you end up in the Vueling, actually. Yeah. So they're, they're really pushing for that. I mean, this is be the topic for another show we'll talk about these how the traditional airlines the flag carriers in europe are pushing their low-cost uh, airlines uh, but we'll, we'll talk about it one of these days on this alex thank you thank you we wrap it up what a fun episode yes so guys uh we see you next week uh, thank you for listening bye-bye bye alex bye take care <laughs>